Today's reading is Luke 15, 11 through 24. After the reading, we will pause for a few moments of reflection to allow God's word to take root. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Owen Suskind was three years old, his parents claimed that he vanished. But he wasn't kidnapped or taken in a physical sense. It was his mind that seemed to disappear. Ron Suskind, his father and a writer for the Wall Street Journal, recalls those days back in 1993. Something's wrong, he says. He's not looking at you. He seems unhappy. He's crying a lot. He was never a big crier. And then we find a few weeks after that he's losing speech. About two months along, he has lost the usual two-and-a-half-year-old vocabulary of 200 words. He's down to a single word, juice. And he's walking around like someone with their eyes shut. He's losing motor function. We're like, what's happening? Could he have ingested something toxic while we weren't looking? Could he have banged his head? Kids don't grow backwards. But very occasionally, they do. Owen had regressive autism, a condition in which the symptoms of autism present themselves when a child is a toddler. This happens to about a quarter of the people 
who have autism. The Suskinds tried to treat Owen in a variety of ways, all to no avail. Between the ages of three and six, Owen would walk around with flailing his arms in the air and talking in what appeared to be absolute nonsense. And then he'd go up to his bedroom where he would watch Disney films. He watched hundreds of hours of Disney films, Bambi, Aladdin, Dumbo, just all the animated Disney films, and he would rewind them and watch scene after scene again and again and again. And then one day at the end of his older brother Walt's ninth birthday party, when most of the friends had, had left, Walt became, oh, excuse me, Walt became tearful. Walt was sitting in the backyard in the garden area with his brother Owen and one other, one other boy. The parents, Ron and Cornelia, were in the kitchen. And Owen walked into the kitchen, and that's when he spoke his first full sentence since he was a toddler. He said to his parents, Walter doesn't want to grow up like Mowgli or Peter Pan. Later that day, Ron Suskind went up to Owen's bedroom. He spotted a puppet on the floor. It was Yago, the parrot from the Disney cartoon Aladdin. Owen loved Aladdin's sidekick. Ron had an idea that would change his life, it would change Owen's life, and would change potentially the lives of, of thousands of people who were suffering from autism. He put his hand into the puppet, he hid himself down by the bed, and he began to speak to Owen in Yago's voice. And he said, how does it feel to be you? Talking to the puppet, Owen said, I'm not happy. I don't have friends. I don't understand what people say. As I watched this, this, I found this documentary to be a very moving story about the persistent, tenacious, and enduring love of two parents who whose son was lost and they went looking for him and they found him and he was, he was changed by their love. It was also very moving for me to watch as a father of four children because I, find, I found it's very difficult to love like this. It's very difficult to love as a parent like these folks are loving. And it also brought to mind my own sister who has an autistic child and that child is now in, their 20s, in her 20s and my sister has been tenaciously and persistently loving an autistic child who has never spoken a word in all of her life. And it also reminded me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, he says, if a son asks his father for bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks him for fish, will he give him a snake? He says, if, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? This is what our Father is like. He's loving. And so today I want to look with you today at the love of God. I want to again visit this topic that we've been looking at of a beautiful risk. And the beautiful risk is to see where love takes us. And we're looking at this through the whole year. So if you're new to Grace, welcome. And we're, we're looking at this beautiful risk, kind of getting back to basics of what, is it, what does it mean to be loved by God and then as a result of being loved by God, to love him in return and to love people who are around us. I mean, that's so fundamental to what it means to be, to have an identity that's shaped by Jesus. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at the enduring love of God. Specifically that God does not give up on us. His love is persistent. 
He persists in loving us. My approach will be very simple. You heard the uh, story read to us today uh, from Luke 15. It's a story that Jesus tells about enduring love. And what I want to do is I want to look at that just briefly with you. I want to fill in some kind of background details on that. And then I want to ask the so what question. What difference might this make if we allow God to love us in this way? And I'll offer some personal reflections, and perhaps you might find those helpful for your own life as you reflect on this this morning. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke 15. It's page 874 in the blue Bibles that are underneath your seat, or pull out your phone to a Bible app so that we can look at the text together. And what I want you to do is to look, first of all, at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, because it sets the stage for what you heard already read to you this morning. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the setting for this is that Jesus is challenged by the religious leaders of his day, not the first time and not the last time. But the problem is, as they see it, is that he is associating with the wrong people. If he were truly a prophet of Israel, he would observe the purity boundaries, and he would not hang out with these people. That's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. And that's what they're going after Jesus about. And so Jesus responds with three stories. All three of them share the same plot line. Something is lost. Something is found. And then there's a celebration. What I want to do is just to focus on the third of those three stories. And it's a story that's very familiar to many people. It's called the story of the prodigal or the parable of the prodigal son. Rembrandt's painting and Henry Nouwen's book that was written about this painting after Henry Nouwen sat in the Hermitage Museum meditating on this gigantic painting in St. Petersburg, Russia. Those two things have become almost as famous as the parable itself. So there's the book, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and then the painting upon which it is based. It's a very, very giant painting hanging in the Hermitage. And while the story might be familiar, there are some very important background pieces, some cultural pieces that are very important to understand if you want to get the the impact, I think, that Jesus was intending in telling this story. So even though perhaps you've heard this before, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, don't screen out necessarily what I'm about ready to say because it might alter the way that you've read this before, okay? So look down at the text with me, again, uh, beginning at verse 11 where the story starts. It says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now you stop right there because there's an important cultural background piece right there. When this younger son asks his father for this property, for the property to be divided to him, He's essentially asking for his inheritance while his father is still alive. In essence, what he's saying to his father is, Father, I wish you would die soon. Now, any, anyone in the ancient Near East, any Middle Eastern father knew that this was an insult. This is a huge insult to this father. Any Middle Eastern father would be on good grounds to kick the son out of the house for for saying that, for asking that of his father. So that's the first cultural piece. And then it goes on to say that the father divided the property. And when he divides the property between the two sons, and the younger son sells his, this is yet another insult. Why? 
Well, because according to the customs of that time, it was vital for, it was expected that the sons would take care of the father in his old age. And that would include holding on to the family property and passing it on through the succeeding generations. So the fact that he takes his half of the property and sells it is yet another insult to the father and is an act of of dishonor. It's a shameful act. And then when the the son squanders his money and he ends up with the pigs, this is the high point of of signaling his, his shame and his degradation that he's reached. Because no Jewish person hung out with pigs. But Jesus surprises his listeners with the father who waits and anticipates the son's return after multiple insults. And then he runs to meet his son. He runs to meet his son. Again, a cultural piece. No elderly man in the ancient Near East ran to do anything. It was undignified. And yet Jesus paints this picture of this father who is, who is anticipating the return of his son. And when he sees him off at a distance, he starts running to meet his son before his son has even come home. He runs to greet and kiss his son when he sees his son at a distance. He even drags his son home to celebrate his homecoming with a party in his honor. Look at verse 24. He says, For this son... For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So no one could miss what Jesus was intending to portray in this father. It's a picture of costly love. Specifically, a love that that does not give up. It persists and endures even in the face of, of rejection. Well, to drive home his point, the second half of the story gives a portrait of the second son, who is the older brother. And he sees himself as the obedient one. Look at verse 28, 29, when he's engaging with his father. He was angry and refused to go in to the party. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And so in, G, in, in his portrayal of this older son, this is a clear reference to the Pharisees who we first met in verses 1 and 2 who launched these three stories. It's a clear reference to the Pharisees who saw themselves as morally superior to Jesus by their separation from people who they viewed as unclean. They're saying, we are the ones who keep the law. We are the ones who obey. We are the ones who are faithful to God. And this older brother resents the celebration of his brother in part because anything that's spent on his brother's party will be coming out of his eventual inheritance because the younger brother already spent all of his. In lecturing his father, which the older brother does, in lecturing his father in front of the guests and refusing to join the party, this older brother, this older son, the second son, shows that he has as much disrespect for his father as his prodigal brother. And yet the father persists in loving the older son. His love endures in the face of resentment and insult and disrespect. 
So when you look at this story, when you stand back and you look at the story, you see once again that, that what Jesus is doing in, in its original context is he's reaching out to the Jewish leaders of his day to say to them that though God's persistent and generous love is being extended to people that you didn't expect, there is still enough love for you. And if you refuse to come to the party that's being offered, that's your choice. But it's not because God doesn't love you, Jesus is telling them. And what's interesting is that the story of Israel that Jesus is pulling on in this parable is a story of God's persistent, enduring love. You go back to the very beginning and you see God taking Israel out of captivity in Egypt through the leadership of Moses. And that story is one of continual rebellion and complaining. And God is persistent in his love toward Israel. His love endures toward them. You go into the period of the judges and it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes and and God remains persistent. He raises up good judges and he loves Israel through these good judges. And so his love remains, it is persistent, it endures. And then through the, the conquest and the exile, the time of the prophets, God's love persists, it endures. Even through the words of Hosea as he portrays God as a parent who persists in loving a prodigal child. Listen to the words of Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. And then the psalmist summarizes this, this, this way of God in Psalm 100 that Daniel already read to us this morning. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. If you really want to see this and and kind of immerse yourself in it, look at Psalm 136 because that phrase is repeated I don't know how many times in that psalm where if we did it in a responsive reading, you would say, okay, 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 I get it, I get it. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. The psalmist wants you to know that this is Israel's God. His love endures. It persists. He is faithful. You know what, friends, this same God extends the same persistent, enduring love to us. And it's grounded, it's anchored in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, who when he hung on the cross and he finished what he went to the cross to do, he said, it is finished. Guaranteeing that this God who showed this persistent, enduring love to Israel could be our God as well. And that we could experience his persistent, enduring love to us as well. So this leads me to the so what. So what difference does this make? If I allow God to love me in this way, if I allow God to love me with his enduring and his persistent love, I want to offer you three things, okay? These are just me, all right? First of all, it removes the fear in love. It removes the fear in love. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected or become mature in love. So it removes the fear in love. When John is talking about perfect love, it's not our love for God that needs to be perfect. It's God's perfect love for us. It's God's love for us that drives out the fear. And it removes the fear that I have to prove myself to God for him to love me. It removes the fear that I have to prove myself to God for him to love me. The pressure to prove ourselves in our culture is immense. And many of us come in here on Sunday because we're exhausted because that is what we have been seeking to do all week, is to prove ourselves to either our employer or to someone who we want to love us more or to someone whom we failed or whatever it might be. We've, we are people who live under tremendous pressure to prove ourselves to someone. And we can bring that same mindset into the church and into our relationship with God. We can come into the church and we can ask the question, am I good enough? Am I spiritual enough? Am I successful enough in whatever it means to be a Christian? You ever thought that in your own mind, internally? I have. There's tremendous pressure, even in the church. From, as a pastor, I'll be very honest with you, you're, you're constantly getting feedback in which there's comparison going on. And so there's, this, there's, there's the voices that I have to shove out that, you know, there's voices that you need to accept which are legitimate critique, and then there's the voices of comparison. How do you, how do you parse and separate the two and not go crazy over, well, you know, people are measuring you all the time. And then I come to this, and I realize that the good news about God's enduring love is this, that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. Is that good news? There's nothing I can do, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Sit in that for a second. Whatever it is that you have out there that you feel that God may be saying, if you would only do this more, then I would love you more. That's not true. That's not true. When Jesus said it is finished, he said it is finished, not will you finish it for me. See, that's what grace is all about. It's unearned. It's a gift. I think most of us have a real difficult time really believing that it comes as free and as unearned as it is. It really is a gift. So back to 1 John 4.18. It also removes a fear that God carries over last week's negative balance. It says, for fear has to do with punishment. God doesn't keep score. He doesn't carry over last week's negative balance. He does not keep score. His love endures. His love carries over from last week into this week. He does not keep score on us. He's not keeping an eternal tab on our failure. That's very encouraging to me. And then finally, I want to end with the way that I started very tangibly, started with two parents loving a child. 
And I want to end by just offering something about loving children or any other person with persistent, enduring love. Jack Miller, who is now deceased, was a pastor who had a prodigal daughter. Her name was Barbara. And he and his wife struggled with this prodigal daughter, and he finally wrote a book with Barbara titled Come Back Barbara. And in this book, he and Barbara exchange writing chapters in which they describe this journey of extending love and receiving love in some very, very difficult circumstances. It's a very raw and honest book. I found it to be very refreshing to me because it wasn't filled with Christian cliches and formulas, easy solutions, happy thoughts, and positive motivational slogans. It was very real. And as I was struggling to love my children as they were growing up, especially in their teenage years, I photocopied a very small section of this and I pasted it on a note card. And I kept it in a, in a journal of quotes that I, that I keep. And I recently discovered it while revisiting that journal. There it is. And many times I return to Jack's words about loving his wayward child. And I want to end with a quote that perhaps you might find to be helpful about whether it's loving a child or loving anyone else with this persistent, enduring love. He writes, At this point, allow me to underscore certain aspects of our approach to Barbara. The key to winning a lost child or any lost person, for that matter, is to reach the conscience The primary way to do that is by building a friendship based upon truth and love, a friendship. But to do this God's way, Christian parents must constantly work to rid themselves of negative feelings and attitudes toward the erring child. You cannot deny the past, of course, for you have been hurt and hurt many times. You must learn to accept the past and not cram all those negative thoughts into the basement of your life, close the door, and deny them. Crippled parents, those who have never had the basements of their lives thoroughly cleaned, will inevitably interfere with Christ's work in the child's life. Christ wants to reach the young person, to find that lost child, for he loves that wandering spirit. But the spirit's convicting work will be severely hindered by a parent's unconscious rejection. The parent can have all sorts of bad memories festering in the mind and as a result close the eyes to the rebel's need for love no matter what he or she is doing. Parents, therefore, must cultivate their relationships with their own Heavenly Father because only from Him can parents learn to forgive, bless, and love. So get in touch with our Holy Father. Keep in touch with Him. And then you're most likely to learn how to get in touch with the wayward child and to keep in touch in a way that will reach the heart. Ultimately, allowing God to love you is the only way you will succeed in showing love. Tender love, tough love, patient love, seeking love, forgiving love, and doing love. Such love eventually triumphs. Sure, someone may say, we tried all that, but it didn't work, so we gave it up as useless. 
But there's another kind of love that I've already mentioned. It is enduring love. When your love is ignored or rejected, you keep right on showing love. Certainly you can't constantly chase the child around all the dark streets of life. But you can wait for openings. And when you see one, you throw the punches of love. Believe me, eventually some of them will land in the heart. Why? Because enduring love is God's weapon for defeating sin. Enduring love is the same kind of love that God has for us in Christ. That's one of the things that sustained me with my children and sustains me to this day is knowing that this is how God has loved me and that this love is available for me, for you, to offer to other people. But the question is, will you let God love you with his enduring love? He wants to. Would you join me in prayer? Maybe in the quietness of this moment, instead of just listening to me pray, maybe in the quietness of this moment, just say to to God, I want to allow you to love me with your enduring love. I want to believe that your grace is sufficient. I want to trust you that you do not keep score. I want to trust you that there is nothing I can do to make you love me more. I want to rest in your love and receive it. Spirit of God, I really believe you want to warm some hearts today. I really believe there's some people here who long to be loved this way, both by people around them and by you. And perhaps they have their arms out to protect themselves against being hurt. Being hurt by a love that that is based upon performance. So I ask that you would shower some people in here today with your love, with a love that endures, that persists, that comes chasing after us continually. Even right now, Father, I pray that through your spirit that you might even give people the experience of the warmth of your love that I know that your spirit is able to do. Even bodily, they may feel embraced by you right now. Father, thank you that you are present here. That through Jesus, you have finished all that needs to be done for us to experience your love. I thank you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name that we come to you with boldness, with gladness, with joy. Amen.